0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Volume 4. Chapter 45. State of Italy under the Lombards. Part 2. Read by Claude Banta. The Ambitious Rosamond aspired to reign in the name of her lover the city and palace of verona were awed by her power and a faithful band of her native gepidae was prepared to applaud the revenge and to second the wishes of their sovereign but the lombard chiefs who fled in the first moments of consternation and disorder had resumed their courage and collected their powers and the nation instead of submitting to her reign Demanded, with unanimous cries, that justice should be executed on the guilty spouse and the murderers of their king. She sought a refuge among the enemies of her country, and a criminal, who deserved the abhorrence of mankind, was protected by the selfish policy of the Exarch. With her daughter, the Heiress of the Lombard throne, her two lovers, her trusty Gepidae, and the spoils of the palace of Verona. Rosamond descended the Adige and the Po, and was transported by a Greek vessel to the safe harbor of Ravenna. Longinus beheld with delight the charms and the treasures of the widow of Alboin. Her situation and her past conduct might justify the most licentious proposals, and she readily listened to the passion of a minister who, even in the decline of the empire, was respected as the equal of kings. The death of a jealous lover was an easy and grateful sacrifice, and, as Helmicus issued from the bath, he received the deadly potion from the hand of his mistress. The taste of the liquor, its speedy operation, and his experience of the character of Rosamond convinced him that he was poisoned. He pointed his dagger to her breast, compelled her to drain the remainder of the cup, and expired in a few minutes with the consolation that she could not survive to enjoy the fruits of her wickedness. The daughter of Alboin and Rosamond, with the richest spoils of the Lombards, was embarked for Constantinople. The surprising strength of Peridus amused and terrified the imperial court. His blindness and revenge exhibited an imperfect copy of The Adventures of Samson by the free suffrage of the nation and the assembly of pavia clefo one of their noblest chiefs was elected as the successor of alboin before the end of 18 months the throne was polluted by a second murder clefo was stabbed by the hand of a domestic the regal office was suspended above 10 years during the minority of his son otharis and italy was divided and oppressed by a ducal aristocracy of thirty tyrants. When the nephew of Justinian ascended the throne, he proclaimed a new era of happiness and glory. The annals of the second Justin are marked with disgrace abroad and misery at home. In the west, the Roman Empire was afflicted by the loss of Italy, the desolation of Africa, and the conquests of the Persians. Injustice prevailed both in the capital and the provinces. The rich trembled for their property, the poor for their safety, the ordinary magistrates were ignorant or venal, the occasional remedies appeared to have been arbitrary and violent, and the complaints of the people could no longer be silenced by the splendid names of a legislator and a conqueror. The opinion which imputes to the prince all the calamities of his times, may be countenanced by the historian as a serious truth or a salutary prejudice, yet a candid suspicion will arise, that the sentiments of Justin were pure and benevolent, and that he might have filled his station without reproach, if the faculties of his mind had not been impaired by disease which deprived the emperor of the use of his feet, and confined him to the palace, a stranger to the complaints of the people and the vices of the government. The tardy knowledge of his own impotence determined him to lay down the weight of the diadem, and, in the choice of a worthy substitute, he showed some symptoms of a discerning and even magnanimous spirit. The only son of Justin and Sophia died in his infancy. Their daughter Arabia was the wife of Baudaris, superintendent of the palace, and afterwards commander of the Italian armies who vainly aspired to confirm the rights of marriage by those of adoption. While the empire appeared an object of desire, Justin was accustomed to behold with jealousy and hatred his brothers and cousins, the rivals of his hopes, nor could he depend on the gratitude of those who would accept the purple as a restitution rather than a gift. Of these competitors, one had been removed by exile and afterwards by death and the emperor himself had inflicted such cruel insults on another, that he must either dread his resentment, or despise his patience. This domestic animosity was refined into a generous resolution, of seeking a successor, not in the family, but in the republic, and the artful Sophia recommended Tiberius, his faithful captain of the guards, whose virtues and fortune the emperor might cherish as the fruit of his judicious choice the ceremony of his elevation to the rank of caesar or augustus was performed in the portico of the palace in the presence of the patriarch and the senate justin collected the remaining strength of his mind and body but the popular belief that his speech was inspired by the deity betrays a very humble opinion both of the man and of the times you behold said the emperor the ensigns of supreme power you are about to receive them not from my hand but from the hand of god honor them and from them you will derive honor respect the empress your mother you are now her son before you were her servant delight not in blood abstain from revenge Avoid those actions by which I have incurred the public hatred, and consult the experience rather than the example of your predecessor. As a man I have sinned, as a sinner even in this life I have been severely punished, but these servants, and we pointed to his ministers, who have abused my confidence and inflamed my passions, will appear with me before the tribunal of Christ. I have been dazzled by the splendor of the diadem. Be thou wise and modest. Remember what you have been, remember what you are. You see around us your slaves and your children. With the authority assume the tenderness of a parent. Love your people like yourself. Cultivate the affections. Maintain the discipline of the army. Protect the fortunes of the rich. Relieve the necessities of the poor. The assembly, in silence and in tears, applauded the councils and sympathized with the repentance of their prince, and the patriarch rehearsed the prayers of the church. Tiberius received the diadem on his knees, and Justin, who in his abdication appeared the most worthy to reign, addressed the new monarch in the following words, If you consent, I live. If you command, I die. May the God of heaven and earth Infuse into your heart whatever I have neglected or forgotten. The four last years of the Emperor Justin were passed in tranquil obscurity. His conscience was no longer tormented by the remembrance of those duties which he was incapable of discharging, and his choice was justified by the filial reverence and gratitude of Tiberius. Among the virtues of Tiberius, his beauty he was one of the tallest and most comely of the romans might introduce him to the favor of sophia and the widow of justin was persuaded that she should preserve her station and influence under the reign of the second and more youthful husband but if the ambitious candidate had been tempted to flatter and dissemble it was no longer in his power to fulfill her expectations or his own promise The factions of the Hippodrome demanded with some impatience the name of their new empress. Both the people and Sophia were astonished by the proclamation of Anastasia, the secret, though lawful, wife of the emperor Tiberius. Whatever could alleviate the disappointment of Sophia, imperial honors, a stately palace, a numerous household, was liberally bestowed by the piety of her adopted son. On solemn occasions he attended and consulted the widow of his benefactor, but her ambition disdained the vain semblance of royalty, and the respectful appellation of mother served to exasperate, rather than appease, the rage of an injured woman. While she accepted and repaid with a courtly smile the fair expressions of regard and confidence, a secret alliance was concluded between the Dowager Empress and her ancient enemies, and Justinian, the son of Germanus, was employed as the instrument of her revenge. The pride of the reigning house supported with reluctance the dominion of a stranger. The youth was deservedly popular, his name after the death of Justin had been mentioned by a tumultuous faction, and his own submissive offer of his head with a treasure of sixty thousand pounds might be interpreted as an evidence of guilt or at least of fear. Justinian received a free pardon, and the command of the eastern army, the Persian monarch fled before his arms, and the acclamations which accompanied his triumph declared him worthy of the purple. His artful patroness had chosen the month of the vintage, while the emperor, in a rural solitude, was permitted to enjoy the pleasures of a subject. On the first intelligence of her designs, he returned to Constantinople and the conspiracy was suppressed by his presence and firmness. From the pomp and honors which she had abused, Sophia was reduced to a modest allowance. Tiberius dismissed her train, intercepted her correspondence, and committed to a faithful guard the custody of her person. But the services of Justinian were not considered by that excellent prince as an aggravation of his offenses. After a mild reproof, His treason and ingratitude were forgiven, and it was commonly believed that the emperor entertained some thoughts of contracting a double alliance with the rival of his throne. The voice of an angel, such a fable was propagated, might reveal to the emperor that he should always triumph over his domestic foes, but Tiberius derived a firmer assurance from the innocence and generosity of his own mind. With the odious name of Tiberius, he assumed the more popular appellation of Constantine, and imitated the purer virtues of the Antonines. After recording the vice or folly of so many Roman princes, it is pleasing to repose for a moment on a character conspicuous by the qualities of humanity, justice, temperance, and fortitude, to contemplate a sovereign affable in his palace, pious in the church, impartial on the seat of judgment and victorious at least by his generals in the persian war the most glorious trophy of his victory consisted of a multitude of captives whom tiberius entertained redeemed and dismissed to their native homes with the charitable spirit of a christian hero the merit or misfortunes of his own subjects had a dearer claim to his beneficence and he measured his bounty not so much by their expectations as by his own dignity this maxim however dangerous in a trustee of the public wealth was balanced by a principle of humanity and justice which taught him to abhor as of the basest alloy the gold that was extracted from the tears of the people for their relief as often as they had suffered by natural or hostile calamities he was impatient to remit the arrears of the past or the demands of future taxes. He sternly rejected the servile offerings of his ministers, which were compensated by tenfold depression, and the wise and equitable laws of Tiberius excited the praise and regret of succeeding times. Constantinople believed that the emperor had discovered a treasure, but his genuine treasure consisted in the practice of a liberal economy and the contempt of all vain and superfluous expense. The Romans of the East would have been happy if the best gift of heaven, a patriot king, had been confirmed as a proper and permanent blessing. But in less than four years after the death of Justin, his worthy successor sunk into a mortal disease, which left him only sufficient time to restore the diadem according to the tenure by which he held it to the most deserving of his fellow-citizens. He selected Maurice from the crowd, a judgment more precious than the purple itself. The patriarch and senate were summoned to the bed of the dying prince. He bestowed his daughter and the empire, and his last advice was solemnly delivered by the voice of the quaestor. Tiberius expressed his hope that the virtues of his son and successor would erect the noblest mausoleum to his memory his memory was embalmed by the public affliction, but the most sincere grief evaporates in the tumult of a new reign, and the eyes and acclamations of mankind were speedily directed to the rising sun. The emperor Maurice derived his origin from ancient Rome, but his immediate parents were settled at Erebusus in Cappadocia, and their singular felicity preserved them alive to behold and partake the fortune of their august son. The youth of Maurice was spent in the profession of arms. Tiberius promoted him to the command of a new and favorite legion of twelve thousand confederates. His valor and conduct were signalized in the Persian war, and he returned to Constantinople to accept, as his just reward, the inheritance of the empire. Maurice ascended the throne at the mature age of forty-three years and he reigned above twenty years over the east and over himself, expelling from his mind the wild democracy of passions, and establishing, according to the quaint expression of Evagrius, a perfect aristocracy of reason and virtue. Some suspicion will degrade the testimony of a subject, though he protests that his secret praise should never reach the ear of his sovereign, and some failings seemed to place the character of Maurice below the purer merit of his predecessor. His cold and reserved demeanor might be imputed to arrogance, his justice was not always exempt from cruelty, nor his clemency from weakness, and his rigid economy too often exposed him to the reproach of avarice. But the rational wishes of an absolute monarch must tend to the happiness of his people, maurice was endowed with sense and courage to promote that happiness and his administration was directed by the principles and example of tiberius the pusillanimity of the greeks had introduced so complete a separation between the offices of king and of general that a private soldier who had deserved and obtained the purple seldom or never appeared at the head of his armies Yet the Emperor Maurice enjoyed the glory of restoring the Persian monarch to his throne, his lieutenants waged a doubtful war against the Avars of the Danube, and he cast an eye of pity, of ineffectual pity, on the abject and distressful state of his Italian provinces. From Italy the emperors were incessantly tormented by tales of misery and demands of succor, which extorted the humiliating confession of their own weakness. The expiring dignity of Rome was only marked by the freedom and energy of her complaints. If you are incapable, she said, of delivering us from the sword of the Lombards, save us at least from the calamity of famine. Tiberius forgave the reproach and relieved the distress. A supply of corn was transported from Egypt to the Tiber, and the Roman people, invoking the name not of Camillus but of St. Peter, repulsed the barbarians from their walls, but the relief was accidental, the danger was perpetual and pressing, and the clergy and senate, collecting the remains of their ancient opulence, a sum of three thousand pounds of gold, despatched the patrician Pamphorinus to lay their gifts and their complaints at the foot of the Byzantine throne. The attention of the court and the forces of the east were diverted by the Persian war, but the justice of tiberius applied the subsidy to the defense of the city and he dismissed the patrician with his best advice either to bribe the lombard chiefs or to purchase the aid of the kings of france notwithstanding this weak invention italy was still afflicted rome was again besieged and the suburb of classe only three miles from ravenna was pillaged and occupied by the troops of a simple duke of Spoleto. Maurice gave audience to a second deputation of priests and senators. The duties and the menaces of religion were forcibly urged in the letters of the Roman pontiff, and his nuncio, the deacon Gregory, was alike qualified to solicit the powers either of heaven or of the earth. The emperor adopted, with stronger effect, the measures of his predecessor, some formidable chiefs were persuaded to embrace the friendship of the Romans, and one of them, a mild and faithful barbarian, lived and died in the service of the Exarchs. The passes of the Alps were delivered to the Franks, and the Pope encouraged them to violate without scruple their oaths and engagements to the misbelievers. Childebert, the great-grandson of Clovis, was persuaded to invade Italy by the payment of fifty thousand pieces but as he had viewed with delight some byzantine coin of the weight of one pound of gold, the king of Austrasia might stipulate that the gift should be rendered more worthy of his acceptance by a proper mixture of these respectable metals. The dukes of the Lombards had provoked by frequent inroads their powerful neighbors of Gaul. As soon as they were apprehensive of a just retaliation, they renounced their feeble and disorderly independence, the advantages of real government, union, secrecy, and vigor were unanimously confessed, and Otharis, the son of Clepho, had already attained the strength and reputation of a warrior. Under the standard of their new king, the conquerors of Italy withstood three successive invasions, one of which was led by Childebert himself, the last of the Merovingian race who descended from the Alps. The first expedition was defeated by the jealous animosity of the Franks and Alamanni. In the second, they were vanquished in a bloody battle, with more loss and dishonor than they had sustained since the foundation of their monarchy. Impatient for revenge, they returned a third time with accumulated force, and Otharus yielded to the fury of the torrent. The troops and treasures of the Lombards were distributed in the walled towns between the Alps and the Apennine. A nation less sensible of danger than of fatigue and delay soon murmured against the folly of their twenty commanders. And the hot vapors of an Italian sun infected with disease those tramontane bodies which had already suffered the vicissitudes of intemperance and famine. The powers that were inadequate to the conquest were more than sufficient for the desolation of the country, nor could the trembling natives distinguish between their enemies and their deliverers. If the junction of the Merovingian and imperial forces had been effected in the neighborhood of Milan, perhaps they might have subverted the throne of the Lombards. But the Franks expected six days the signal of a flaming village and the arms of the Greeks were idly employed in the reduction of Modena and Parma, which were torn from them after the retreat of their transalpine allies. The victorious Otharus asserted his claim to the dominion of Italy. At the foot of the Ration Alps he subdued the resistance and rifled the hidden treasures of a sequestered island in the lake of Comum. At the extreme point of Calabria he touched with his spear a column on the seashore of Regium, proclaiming that ancient landmark to stand the immovable boundary of his kingdom. During a period of two hundred years, Italy was unequally divided between the kingdom of the Lombards and the Exarte of Ravenna. The offices and professions, which the jealousy of Constantine had separated, were united by the indulgence of Justinian, and eighteen successive Exarchs were invested in the decline of the empire, with the full remains of civil, of military, and even of ecclesiastical power. Their immediate jurisdiction, which was afterwards consecrated as the patrimony of St. Peter, extended over the modern Romagna, the marshes or valleys of Frera and Camacho, five maritime cities from Rimini to Ancona, and a second inland pentopolis between the Adriatic coast and the hills of the Apennine three subordinate provinces of Rome, of Venice, and of Naples, which were divided by hostile lands from the palace of Ravenna, acknowledged, both in peace and war, the supremacy of the Exarch. The Duchy of Rome appears to have included the Tuscan, Sabine, and Latin conquests of the first 400 years of the city, and the limits may be distinctly traced along the coast, from Civitavecchia to Terracina, and with the course of the Tiber, from Ameria and Narni, to the port of Ostia. The numerous islands from Grotto to Sciosa composed the infant dominion of Venice, but the more accessible towns on the continent were overthrown by the Lombards, who beheld with impotent fury a new capital rising from the waves. The power of the Dukes of Naples was circumscribed by the bay and the adjacent isles, by the hostile territory of Capua, and by the Roman colony of Amalfi, whose industrious citizens, by the invention of the mariner's compass, have unveiled the face of the globe. The three islands of Sardinia, Corsica, and Sicily still adhere to the empire, and the acquisition of the farther Calabria removed the landmark of Artares from the shore of Regium to the Isthmus of Consentia. In Sardinia, the savage mountaineers preserved the liberty and religion of their ancestors, and the husbandmen of Sicily were chained to their rich and cultivated soil. Rome was oppressed by the iron scepter of the exarchs, and a Greek, perhaps a eunuch, insulted with impunity the ruins of the capital. But Naples soon acquired the privilege of electing her own dukes. The independence of Amalfi was the fruit of commerce and the voluntary attachment of venice was finally ennobled by an equal alliance with the eastern empire on the map of italy the measure of the Exarte occupies a very inadequate space but it included an ample proportion of wealth industry and population the most faithful and valuable subjects escaped from the barbarian yoke and the banners of pavia and verona of milan and padua were displayed in their respective quarters by the new inhabitants of ravenna the remainder of italy was possessed by the lombards and from pavia the royal seat their kingdom was extended to the east the north and the west as far as the confines of the avars the bavarians and the franks of austrasia and burgundy in the language of modern geography it is now represented by the terra firma of the venetian republic Triole, the Milanese, Piedmont, the coast of Genoa, Mantua, Parma, and Modena, the grand duchy of Tuscany, and a large portion of the ecclesiastical state, from Perugia to the Adriatic. The dukes, and at length the princes of Beneventum, survived the monarchy, and propagated the name of the Lombards. From Capua to Tarentum, they reigned near five hundred years over the greater part of the present kingdom of Naples. In comparing the proportion of the victorious and the vanquished people, the change of language will afford the most probable inference. According to this standard, it will appear that the Lombards of Italy and the Visigoths of Spain were less numerous than the Franks or Burgundians, and the conquerors of Gaul must yield in their turn to the multitude of Saxons and Angles who almost eradicated the idioms of Britain. The modern Italian has been insensibly formed by the mixture of nations. The awkwardness of the barbarians in the nice management of declensions and conjugations reduced them to the use of articles and auxiliary verbs, and many new ideas have been expressed by Teutonic appellations. Yet the principal stock of technical and familiar words is found to be of Latin derivation and if we were sufficiently conversant with the obsolete the rustic and the municipal dialects of ancient italy we should trace the origin of many terms which might perhaps be rejected by the classic purity of rome a numerous army constitutes but a small nation and the powers of the lombards were soon diminished by the retreat of twenty thousand saxons who scorned a dependent situation and returned, after many bold and perilous adventures, to their native country. The camp of Alboen was of formidable extent, but the extent of a camp would be easily circumscribed within the limits of a city, and its martial inhabitants must be thinly scattered over the face of a large country. When Alboen ascended from the Alps, he invested his nephew, the first duke of Friwili, with the command of the province and the people. But the prudent Guisulph would have declined the dangerous office, unless he had been permitted to choose, among the nobles of the Lombards, a sufficient number of families to form a perpetual colony of soldiers and subjects. In the progress of conquest, the same option could not be granted to the dukes of Brescia or Bergamo, to Pavia or Turin, to Spoleto or Beneventum; but each of these, and each of their colleagues, settled in his appointed district with a band of followers, who resorted to his standard in war and his tribunal in peace. Their attachment was free and honorable. Resigning the gifts and benefits which they had accepted, they might emigrate with their families into the jurisdiction of another duke, but their absence from the kingdom was punished with death as a crime of military desertion. The posterity of the first conqueror struck a deeper root into the soil, which by every motive of interest and honor they were bound to defend. A Lombard was born the soldier of his king and his duke, and the civil assemblies of the nation displayed the banners and assumed the appellation of a regular army. Of this army the pay and the rewards were drawn from the conquered provinces, and the distribution which was not effected till after the death of Alboin, is disgraced by the foul marks of injustice and rapine. Many of the most wealthy Italians were slain or banished, the remainder were divided among the strangers, and a tributary obligation was imposed, under the name of hospitality, of paying to the Lombards a third part of the fruits of the earth. Within less than seventy years, this artificial system was abolished, by a more simple and solid tenure either the roman landlord was expelled by a strong and insolent guest or the annual payment a third of the produce was exchanged by a more equitable transaction for an adequate proportion of landed property under these foreign masters the business of agriculture in the cultivation of corn wines and olives was exercised with degenerate skill and industry by the labor of the slaves and natives, but the occupation of a pastoral life were more pleasing to the idleness of the barbarian. In the rich meadows of Venetia they restored and improved the breed of horses for which that province had once been illustrious, and the Italians beheld with astonishment a foreign race of oxen or buffaloes. The depopulation of Lombardy and the increase of forests afforded an ample range for the pleasures of the chase that marvelous art which teaches the birds of the air to acknowledge the voice and execute the commands of their master had been unknown to the ingenuity of the greeks and romans scandinavia and scythia produced the boldest and most tractable falcons they were tamed and educated by the roving inhabitants always on horseback and in the field This favorite amusement of our ancestors was introduced by the barbarians into the Roman provinces, and the laws of Italy esteemed the sword and the hawk as of equal dignity and importance in the hands of a noble Lombard. End of chapter forty five, part two.